Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today God speaks to us from Job 2, verses 11 through 13, 4, verse 1, and then verses 7 through 9, and then 5, verses 12 through 17. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the, up, were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. He thwarts the plans of the crafty, so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At noon, they grope as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts its mouth. Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Uh, so we are in the second Sunday of uh, the Lent season. Uh, and uh, over the course of this Lent season, we are in a series in the book of Job called A Public Witness. Uh, lessons in suffering. Uh, and the goal of this entire series over the coming weeks uh, is going to be wrestling with this idea of suffering. What are we to make of suffering? And in particular, what is it uh, that's unique about the Christian perspective on suffering? Um, kind of in the, the vein of what we've been uh, in the middle of with our public faith season, something that we do believe is that Christians do suffer differently. And as Christians suffer differently, uh, as a result, this different way of approaching suffering actually becomes an opportunity for Christians to have a, a public witness of welcoming people into the hope that's found even in the midst of suffering. And so with that in mind, I want to jump right now, quickly, just uh, get right to it. Second week of this series, looking at Job by uh, continuing to wrestle through uh, suffering by considering three things— First, we're going to take a look at the complexity of suffering. Second, we're going to look at the perceived simplicity of suffering. And then finally, the exposure of suffering. All right, let's jump right in. First, the complexity of su suffering. All right, I need you to do me a favor, and I need you to, like, nerd out with me just for a minute. Okay, we're about to go, like, real high up into the clouds for a few minutes, but I promise it's all going to get to uh, very practical realities here. But there is a, a philosophical uh, and theological concept known as multi-perspectivalism. 
Uh, there's a, from a theological perspective, philosophers like John Frame and Vern Poitras have done a lot in the advancement of this uh, particular field of study. But in, in essence, multi-perspectivalism uh, is an approach to knowledge that takes seriously the limitations uh, and finiteness of individuals and specific perspectives. Uh, this limitation often tends to skew our understanding of truth and knowledge since none of us can actually see and experience all that can be known uh, in this world. And so in the words of Poitras, one of those philosophers, he says that multi-perspectivalism invites us to take seriously the insights and the differences in emphasis that arise from viewing a particular subject matter from more than one point of view. Right? So for Christians... We also know that because God is the source of all truth, uh, and we would say, Christians would say, that the Bible is God's revelation of that truth, all perspectives are under the authority of God's ultimate revelation, which we believe to be found in Scripture. However, that is different than saying that we believe in our finiteness that we can understand the totality of truth. We believe that everything is under the authority of Scripture, and yet we also cannot possibly know all that there is to know. Uh, and there are many cases when we must recognize our own finitude and take seriously the perspectives uh, from outside of our own perspectives, again, all of which, for the Christian, is under the authority of Scripture. Now, I'm going to get to my main point. I want you to kind of pin that idea for a minute. I'm going to get to my main point and how this relates to Job. But before I do, let me just camp out here for a second. This notion of looking at the same, um, uh, looking at things from different, differing perspectives. It's a pretty simple assertion that I actually think we don't give nearly enough weight to, especially now in our cultural moment. We see this constantly an inability to do this, see things from a, ver a variety of different perspectives. But we as a society are in desperate need of developing a robust multi-perspectivalism that recognizes the limitations of our own perspectives on a variety of different issues. Issues that are far more complex than we might assume or that we want to admit. And just as an example, we live in this day and age where political pundits and commentators and cultural critics and even religious leaders of our day have this vested interest in trying to make us think simplistically because, frankly, they, have, they are able, through that simple way of thinking, they're able to make money, gain influence, and even establish power when they can convince us that their perspective is gospel. For example... Uh, if you consider kind of the, the broad media landscape that we have out in the zeitgeist right now, uh, there's various assessments that have been done by uh, a variety of different uh, independent researchers that create a spectrum of all of the major news outlets. Uh, that spectrum running from left to right, of course. Uh, and you find a couple of things. So in a lot of these assessments, you see on the one far end of the spectrum, you see organizations like Fox News, The Daily Wire, National Review. You go to the other end of that spectrum, to the far left, you have The New York Times, Vox, CNN, and the like. Okay? Now, this is a little bit of a side note, but just so that we are encouraging one another in this idea of thinking robustly, if I just named the only sources of new coverage that you ever actually engage with or hear from, more than likely, it's possible 
that we've kind of like ended up down into a rabbit hole of indoctrination and not necessarily hearing objectivity. It's often far too simplistic because anecdotally, the reason why I, I know this, this is just my own, I don't know, for my own kicks. Every morning, uh, I listen to podcasts from Fox News and the New York Times because I am fascinated by the way they pontificate on the exact same topics and how they both do so with so much confidence and vibrato all the time. And as we, um, as we gear up for another kind of contentious election, uh, and as the culture wars continue to wage, I just want to encourage us all just to say we must be a people that recognize our finiteness, the finiteness of a variety of different perspectives, perspectives that we probably often even agree with. Because every day, here's what I find fascinating. Fox News and the Daily Wire, uh, the New York Times and Vox, every day they are saying some things that are true. But they are also spouting perspectives and ideas and postures and attitudes that are deeply biased and deeply antithetical to God's truth. And multi-perspectivalism helps us see through the fog that they create, a fog that would otherwise uh, consume us, so that we can at least begin to assess things properly and not necessarily fall into that rabbit hole of indoctrination where we take an entire train of thought or platform as gospel. Now that was a total tangent, completely unrelated to what I wanted to say. That was just a freebie. You're welcome. But what does this have to do with Job? Well, the Bible actually takes multi-perspectivalism, that is a mouthful, very seriously. The canon of Scripture is constantly providing differing perspectives, showing us the complexity of life, where we might too easily fall prey to simplicity. As an example, consider the the wisdom books of the Bible. Particularly, consider uh, the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. If you read Proverbs, Proverbs, uh, as a wisdom book, tends to present wisdom and knowledge in a very cause-and-effect kind of way. Meaning, if you do this, then that will happen. If you make wise decisions, good things will happen. But if you do something foolish, then bad things are going to happen. Everything seems to have a simple, categorizable outcome. But then you get to Ecclesiastes, another wisdom book. And if you know anything about the famous refrain of Ecclesiastes, the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is constantly declaring that everything is meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Right? The book is constantly arguing that it doesn't actually matter what you do. The wicked will prosper, the wise will suffer, and everything you think matters doesn't really matter because in the end we're all going to die anyway. So what do we do with these two very different perspectives and approaches to life? Well, if we we only take one of them seriously and not the other, we find ourselves trapped in a very finite perspective, one that the Bible refuses to allow us to take. Instead, in the spirit of multi-perspectivalism, we can bring together both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and see that truth actually exists as we bring those things together. And all of that now has been to say that the book of Job does just that. The book of Job is very much Proverbs and Ecclesiastes intersecting into the life of this man named Job. 
It takes a variety of perspectives and weaves them all together so that we have the most robust picture of suffering that we can possibly possess. A perspective that, again, is a unique one when you consider the landscape of other perspectives. What do I mean? Well, what, have we, what have we already seen? What, what have we already processed uh, since last week? Well, in the, the opening chapters of the book, we see a conversation between God and Satan about suffering, the suffering that Job is experiencing. In essence, Satan says to God, listen, the only reason Job uh, follows you uh, is because you have blessed him. But without that blessing, he will curse you. And so God allows Satan to bring suffering into Job's life. Uh, but God keeps Satan on a leash, doesn't let him do whatever he wants, uh, and essentially tells Satan you're not allowed to kill Job. But Job is completely unaware of this conversation because from his perspective, all he knows is that his children, his home, his wealth, his health have all been taken from him. And as a result, Job is wrestling with God about his suffering but then all he gets from God is silence. Until, of course, the end of the book. God confronts Job and actually refuses to answer Job's questions and gives no justification for the suffering that Job is experiencing. In this way, the book of Job kind of ends very much like Ecclesiastes. It's just everything is meaningless. There's no point to any of this. But then, as if God anticipates our temptation— to plunge into despair, what we actually see is in Job's continued faithfulness to God. At the end, everything ends up being restored to him. His health, his wealth, they all return as a result of Job's faithfulness. And so then it seems like we're swinging back into kind of a Proverbs kind of world, where this, this belief that if we are faithful, then yes, we too will experience restored blessings like Job did. But then, lest we settle too much into that stream of thought, the book ends with the reality that his children are still dead. He has still suffered horrendously. And ultimately, who cares what possessions were restored to him because he met the same fate as anyone else who's ever lived. He died. What difference does it make what he possessed coming up to that death? Which again seems to plunge us back into Ecclesiastes. Do you see my point? The book of Job refuses to allow us to overly simplify suffering. And when we consider the reality of suffering, we are too often allured by simple answers and explanations. And in that simplicity, we miss what God might be accomplishing because as the one who has infinite perspective, there is far more to be seen and far more to be known in the midst of suffering than we could comp possibly comprehend. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are both true, and in that tension is where we actually find answers. And they might not be the answers that we desired and that we set out to have in the beginning, but they are answers nonetheless. Okay, with all of that said, now what does that have to do with our passage? Well, for the next couple of weeks, that was a lot of preface, because for the next couple of weeks, we are going to see what happens when simple answers are given to suffering, which now leads us back to our passage and to point number two, which is the perceived simplicity of suffering. So after Job has experienced tremendous loss, he has three friends that come to visit him. 
And for the next 30 plus chapters or so, we see these cycles of conversations between Job and his friends. Basically, his friends, uh, Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar come and they make arguments for why Job is suffering, to which Job then responds. And each friend, in essence, is arguing for a simplified perspective that exists in the world. Perspectives that in many ways remain with us even today. And in this first cycle that we just heard read, we see Eliphaz make his case for why Job is suffering. Look at uh, verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9. He says this, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. Let me pause there. Do you see the logic? The logic he's presenting is very Proverbs-esque. He's arguing that Job's suffering must be the result of his guilt before God. He says, for who, being innocent, has ever perished? He's arguing that Job must have done something to experience such calamity for those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And those who suffer are experiencing the anger of God because at the blast of his anger they are no more. Plus, he spins this suggestion into some really spiritual-sounding jargon. Look at, uh, at chapter 5, verse 12. He says he thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He saves the needy uh, from the sword in their mouths. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful so the poor have hope and injustice shuts its mouth. Eliphaz is making the case. Listen, God is a righteous God. He is an enemy of the unjust and will not let them win. And then he kind of wraps it all up and says in verse 17, Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. If you were to just read that, it sounds true. It sounds right. Of course God is just. Of course God will not allow injustice to prevail. But in the context of what we're reading here, it's simple. It's too simple. He's arguing that your suffering, whatever it might be, is the result of your sin. And that you should count yourself blessed because God is disciplining you. So Job, what did you do to unleash the fury of God upon your life? Now, of course, Job's response to this, uh, this idea, we didn't give uh, this, it's a very long uh, response that he gives. It's, uh, the full dialogue is chapters long. But in response to this, in summary, Job is very distressed. Remember, he does not know that the suffering in his life is precisely because he is righteous. He is not aware that Satan is targeting him because of his faithfulness to God. And he goes into a bit of an existential crisis at the suggestion of Eliphaz. In response uh, to Eliphaz, in chapter 6, Job implores him to look more closely at his life and asks, Is there any injustice on my tongue? In other words, what have I done wrong? And he's so confused at this accusation of injustice on his part. And then in chapter 7, Job then goes before God with this crisis. And he says, If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made my mark? Made, why have you made me your mark? 
Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgressions and take away my iniquities? In other words, now he's going before God. God, what did I do to deserve all of this? Now, in our finitude, we lack a full and complete knowledge of what might be taking place. And so often, this temptation of Eliphaz will come, which will then either cause us to do one of two things. Either we begin to question the character of God, which we're going to consider that temptation in the coming weeks, or we're going to do what Eliphaz does and what sends Job into this existential crisis. We'll start to assume that suffering is the result of our failures because we do not have categories for innocent suffering. This is why we are so often sent into similar existential crises when bad things happen to good people or when good things happen to bad people. We get so locked into this cause and effect dynamic, so often looking for clean answers as to why something has befallen us or others. We get so locked in that we refuse to acknowledge the uncertainty and the, uh, uh, the unanswerable questions that come. Sometimes there are no good answers. We so desperately want a Proverbs situation when instead all we're given is Ecclesiastes. And this is where Job is, wrestling with the tension because of this simple answer presented by his friend. Now let me give one uh, caveat that I mentioned last week. I want to also just note here that I'm not necessarily talking about the suffering that does come as a direct result of our sin. Meaning, I'm not talking about the suffering that comes when I'm in jail because I broke the law and I hurt someone. I'm not talking about the financial struggles and suffering that I'll experience when I get fired from my job because I lied or cheated or stole. I'm not talking about the suffering that comes because we didn't control our lusts or our passions. I'm not talking about the suffering that comes in our families or amongst our friends and our communities because of our selfishness or our self-centeredness. That's a very much so a kind of Proverbs way of viewing the world, that there are consequences to unwise, poor, selfish decisions, many of which will likely result in my own suffering or the suffering of others. What we're talking about here is the suffering that befalls us, that seems so often purposeless, senseless, unanswerable. You know, for Job, that suffering looked like the unexpected loss of loved ones, It looked like unexpected sickness. It looked like poverty that struck him for no discernible reason. Injustices that come without reason or rationale. It's the kind of suffering that whether we are righteous or unrighteous, just or unjust, Christians or not Christians, it's the kind of suffering that we will all experience at some point. And one of the simple answers that will tempt us is that we deserved it because we did something wrong. And I want us to just hear this clearly, that the book of Job shows us how that is one of the most manipulative of lies. I mean, remember, the whole experience of Job is the result of Satan attempting to force Job to curse God and to see suffering through a lens of only punishment and retribution is this simplistic answer that actually undermines the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Now, my friends, I I draw all this out because there are too many instances 
when the perspective of Eliphaz has been used in the exact way that Satan intends, as a manipulative and even abusive lie. And frankly, the, the words of Eliphaz remind me so much of the spiritually abusive language that becomes too commonplace. The spiritually abusive language that maybe some of you have been, ex- that you've experienced in the past, I know that I have been the victim of. Language that seems so spiritual, so theologically sound, but is ultimately exposed as a manipulative ploy to simplify the complexities of suffering. And that manipulative lie of Eliphaz was exposed for what it was a scheme of the enemy. And Job had every right to spiral into this existential crisis because there's something wrong with that kind of answer. Because sometimes in our limited and finite perspective, there are no good answers to suffering. There's no cause and effect situation. But when we see the lie of Eliphaz, for what it is, just that, a lie. And if we refuse to accept the simple perspective, that suffering that may come actually can provide us a clear vision for what God is doing in the midst of that suffering. Which brings me, finally, to the exposure of suffering. Uh, In exposing the words of Eliphaz as a lie, we actually see a hope, my friends, that sustains us through suffering. Look uh, again at uh, verse 7. Eliphaz says this, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? So let me pause there. Eliphaz claims that no innocent person has perished. No upright person has been destroyed. But what we see throughout Scripture is how wrong that is. I referenced this passage last week by Isaiah 53. I think we may end up referencing Isaiah 53 every week. But listen to what the prophet Isaiah has to say about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is also in Isaiah 53 that we see Eliphaz's statements as actually the lies that they are. And I think I have that. Is that in there? Is there Isaiah 53 in there? Yes? Okay. No? Okay. If it is... Uh, in verse 4, it says this, Isaiah 53. It says that surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Let me pause there for a second. Do you see, thousands of years after Eliphaz utters his lies, Isaiah speaks of Jesus' suffering and the assumption that we will make that his suffering was the result of a punishment from God. Interesting. But here's the thing. There are passages like 1 Peter 2 that tell me that Jesus was the one who suffered, and yet he was without sin. We see in 2 Corinthians 5 that he was, again, tempted in all things, but was, was without sin. So what we see is we see Jesus suffering, and yet being one without sin. But then why did Jesus suffer? Isaiah goes on to say in, in verse 5, says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus suffered 
so that we might see the lie of Eliphaz as what it is, a lie. There is not a direct cause and effect correlation between suffering and my sin. Even Jesus, the truly sinless one, experienced suffering. And through the suffering of Jesus, what we see is what comes forth is truly our ultimate hope. The redemption, the restoration, the joy that comes through his suffering. And then when we see past that suffering, we see past the cross of Christ, and we look upon the power of his resurrection, we see it's there where the suffering ultimately leads us and where it ultimately ends. It leads us to the destruction of that suffering. The resurrection of Jesus proves that suffering does not get the final say and that there's new life even on the other side of death. And my friends, when I remember that reality, I truly believe that in the midst of our suffering, if we can truly remember the hope that is being accomplished through suffering, that we will experience little glimmers of that coming day, even now. Because I believe that as we trust in what Jesus is accomplishing, that God will meet us in our suffering to bring us comfort, encouragement, and joy, no matter what suffering might befall us. So that when we we find ourselves in the pit of despair, spiraling into these Ecclesiastes moments, that the Lord would come to us and remind us of, as an example, the prayer of Jesus before he goes to the cross. That that kind of prayer might resonate where, if you remember, Jesus prays, Father, take this cup from me. In other words, I don't want to suffer any longer. But then, of course, Jesus goes on and he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. Do you know what that is? That's a trust that the Father has plans and purposes that are far greater than just the suffering I might be experiencing now. Or in the words of Job, whether the Lord gives or the Lord takes away, he is worthy of praise. The Lord meets us in our suffering with that kind of hope. I'll end with this. In John 9, there's a a remarkable story where Jesus uh, comes across a man who's been blind since birth. And as, uh, as they approach him, he and his disciples, uh, the disciples, believing, ironically, the lie of Eliphaz, they ask Jesus a question. They ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, surely, Jesus, somebody sinned in order for this suffering to befall this man. Remember Jesus' response. Jesus replies, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. My friends, we might not ever know all the reasons for suffering. Job never did. But I trust Jesus when he says that in and through that suffering, there will be opportunities to see the mighty works of God. And for some of us, maybe our testimony is going to be that God removes that suffering from us. And if so, praise God. But for many of us, our testimony might just be the goodness of God in the midst of the suffering, suffering that we never fully understood or had answers for. Either way, may the mighty works of God be displayed in us through our suffering. And in this season of public faith, a season where we consider what it means to put our faith on display, 
and to do so in a way that welcomes others into that faith, suffering well, is actually a testament of the goodness of God. And it puts the goodness of God on display for all those that we interact with because nowhere else do you find such a holistic perspective of suffering. One where suffering is taken so seriously, so seriously that the Son of God bore our suffering. Yet at the same time, so hopefully, because the mighty works of God will be displayed even in the midst of that suffering. And so my prayer would be, Christian, as you suffer well, that becomes a testament to the world, of the goodness of God. But that for all of us, we would find this hope that Jesus himself brings by being the one who bears our suffering. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you're a God who knows the end of the beginning, have all knowledge, you hold all truth, you have every perspective we could fathom, and even beyond. And in that power and might, there are plans and purposes, things that you are accomplishing that go far beyond what we can imagine. We have such a limited perspective on what you're doing. And so when suffering befalls us, so often we can look for simple answers, simple answers that do not do justice to all that you're accomplishing. And so, Lord, I pray that in the midst of that, we would cling to you in a way that uh, we aren't able to cling to you when we aren't experiencing hardship and suffering. That we would cling to you as a God that is worthy of our trust because you have proven yourself committed to us in Jesus, the one who has come, bore our suffering, borne our pain. Help us look upon him and find hope and joy, even in the midst of suffering. And as we do, would you also provide us opportunity to present your goodness to a world so desperately in need of hope in the midst of their suffering? Would you accomplish it by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.